Hey guys, good to see you uh, online this weekend. I'm glad that you have the opportunity, ability to join us online. If uh, you're somebody who does this regularly, we'd love to hear from you, just how you're doing. And uh, But we're glad that we have the opportunity to do this. Uh, for some of you, man, this was the week uh, kids went back to school. And so whether that was virtual or in person, hopefully it was a good week that way. Uh, but I'm glad that we can be here because we want to jump back into a conversation that we've been having. Uh, we've been in this book called First Peter, and uh, we're getting to the end of it. Next week will be our final week in this book. And we said this book was a book that was written to real people, and uh, these real people lived in a real place, modern-day Turkey, and they were facing some real predicament in their life, right? And so Peter, the whole purpose of this thing is he's writing it because he wants them to know where they can anchor their hope, that a living hope is what he says, chapter 1, is found in Jesus, and that when I receive the gift of living hope, it expresses itself in my life. I start living hope. So that's why we said this, that First Peter is all about living hope while living here. And as Peter is writing this, we said the first week that this is written to real people by a real person. And so by the time he's writing this, he's old. He wasn't always old, right? But he's older, right? It's about 30 years removed from when he saw Jesus raised from the dead, meeting him on the shore, and he's writing it to a group of people. And what's interesting is this, is, is as Peter is old now, life has a way of seasoning you. And what he wants to talk to us about today is very important because he wants to talk to us about suffering. I realize, right, don't turn it off. I realize that doesn't sound like, wow, who wants to hear a talk on suffering? And yet, I think what he wants to talk to us about today is extremely important for us to hear. Peter is not going to have this conversation just isolated. He just didn't say, hey, I think this would be a good thing to talk about. Uh, you got to understand, this book is written by a real person. Peter was a real person. I don't know if you know his story or not, but when Peter first started following Jesus, he was a fisherman, young right? Robust, had a business, right? He's a fisherman. Jesus called him to come and follow him, and Peter left his nets and followed Jesus. He's like, man, we're going to follow Jesus. This is where our hope's at. Uh, Jesus is going to be the leader. He's going to bring reform. We're going to start seeing things happen. He's going to give people hope. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall, when Peter, who left his business to follow Jesus in the hope of his leadership, right, in the middle of this Roman oppression, loved to have been a fly on the wall when Peter sat through Jesus' first recorded sermon. Because all of a sudden they start gathering all these people, and you know, Peter probably saying, man, this movement, this is awesome, it's going to be great, right? And then Jesus starts preaching, and Peter's sitting there, he's looking around, right? And all of a sudden, in the middle of this sermon, Jesus says this, blessed are you, Matthew 5, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, rejoice, be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Can you imagine being Peter? Right? He left his business. He's going to follow this guy. They're trying to get a following, and he's like, we're going to have to work on this guy's sermons, Right? Like, if you want people to follow you, we're going to have to, like, talk about something different than persecution. Uh, Jesus left that sermon, and maybe Peter's like, I don't know what to think about that, but Jesus started healing people, doing some incredible things, feeding lots of people, and it's like, all right, that's more like it, right? I think Peter liked the way he confronted the religious establishment. And then one day, 
Jesus was with his followers and Peter was there, the guy who wrote this book, and Jesus asked him a question. Who's everybody say that I am? Well, they answered, some say you're a prophet, maybe Elijah. And then Jesus looks at them and says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? Well, Peter was the spokesman of the group, right? He spoke up and said, you're the Messiah. You're, you're the promised one. You're the Christ. Jesus says, you got it, Peter. On that statement, I'm going to build my church. And then Jesus began to tell his disciples how he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. And Peter, the spokesman, literally at that moment, if you read the story, he began to correct Jesus. <laughs> I love Peter. He begins to correct the Son of God. He rebukes him, it says. He says, no, that's never going to happen. Peter didn't want a Christianity that had a cross involved. He wanted the crown. He wanted this whole thing of following Jesus. He wanted a movement, but he didn't want the suffering. He didn't want the cross. Jesus turned on his heel and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You don't have in mind the things of God. A little further in the story, Jesus is with his disciples and he's washing their feet. Peter says, not mine. Jesus says, man, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And then Jesus says, I'm going to go die. Well, at that point, Peter's like, I'll die with you. And Jesus says, the fact of the matter is, before the night's out, you'll deny you know me three times. They arrest Jesus and take him away and Peter right on script. Three times is asked if he is an associate of Jesus's. And three times, right on script, he denies that he knows him. The book of Luke says at that point, Jesus' eyes turned and met Peter's. And I think that moment changed Peter. Because once Jesus was buried, he rose again, and then we have another encounter where he comes and he sees Peter. And he lets Peter know that, hey, I want to let you know that there's going to come a time when you're going to die a death, when you're going to suffer. And when you read the book of Acts, you see a different Peter, different from the young, proud fisherman, because now he is a persecuted preacher. He's imprisoned. He is suffering for the name of Jesus, just like that first sermon said he might. You see, why do I tell you that? I tell you that because that's the guy who's writing this part of the letter. You need to know he has a story. And when you know his backstory, it makes this part of the story begin to pop. And here's what he says. If you have your Bibles, 1 Peter 4, he starts by saying this. He's old and he's seasoned now. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Can I stop for a minute? When he writes this, they would have had a picture. If you know anything about history, you know that in AD 64, there's a common phrase that say, says this, Nero fiddled while Rome burned. You know, it's a phrase that comes because Rome burned and the pressure was being put on Nero because they were beginning to look at him with some mistrust. And so what Nero did, the emperor did, he began to blame the Christians. 
Tacitus, a historian of that time, said this, he began to blame them and accuse them and convict them to the point where when they were accused of this crime, literally, he says this, mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. They were covered with the skins of beasts. They were torn by dogs and perished. They were nailed to crosses and doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when the daylight had expired. When Peter writes this, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal. It was an ordeal, and it was even fiery. He goes on to say this, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. Can you hear a part of that first sermon that Peter would have heard? (laughs) For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who don't obey the gospel of God? Then he says this, if it is hard... And what he's saying there is that there's like this one way. That's that's what that Greek word means. One way for the righteous to be saved. What will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19, so then those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. The now older Peter with the patience of his one-time teacher Jesus when he was the young Peter This older Peter now wants friends of his, followers of Christ, to know two things about suffering. There are two things that this passage, and they're so important for us to know this weekend. He wants us to know the nature of suffering, and then he's going to talk to us about our response to suffering. Let's start with the nature of suffering. This is not a new topic for Peter. He's been talking about suffering and he mentions suffering in every chapter so far. Chapter one he does, chapter two he does. Chapter two he says, to this you were called to suffer. Chapter three he does, he says, don't be surprised when you suffer even for doing good. And now we get to chapter four. And I think there's three things about suffering in this part that he wants us to get a hold of. First is this, if you take notes and I would do this, I would write this down. He wants us to know that suffering happens for different reasons. Let's just make a general statement. Suffering happens for different reasons. There are probably more than this, but there's at least three reasons that we suffer. First is this, if you're writing and taking notes, I'd write this down. We suffer because we live in a fallen world, right? The world we live in, is. we talked about this last week. We live in a world where there's sin, and so suffering is a part of that, right? Here's what I know. Suffering is a reality in our world. We're seeing that down south, right? I mean, there is storms that literally are demolishing the homes of people. People that we might think, well, those were good people. People that we might think, well, those weren't so good people, right? It demolishes the home of the good and the not so good, right? Disease kills people, the just and the unjust right? Accidents happen to people. We live in a fallen world. There is suffering. There's a second reason, though, I think, and Peter alludes to this, that suffering happens, and suffering sometimes happens because sometimes I make dumb decisions, right? 
I mean, it's just, I don't know if you ever made a dumb decision, but sometimes you make a dumb decision and you suffer, what? The consequences of those decisions. And I think Peter alludes to that. If, if you see in your Bible, he says, hey, when you suffer, he says, don't suffer like a murderer, right? A thief or, or any other kind of criminal. He's like, I mean, it kind of makes sense. If, if you suffer, if you're a murderer and you pay the consequences or a thief and you pay the consequences, but, but then Peter does something interesting, right? Because it's almost like you read that first part of the list, a murderer, a thief, or a criminal, and you're like, you can almost feel all the church people he's talking to, like, I didn't make that list. <laughs> and then Peter pulls the rug, right? He uses a word that this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. He said, and don't suffer as a meddler. And like, what is that, right? That's literally a busybody. That's somebody who has their nose in other people's business. That's somebody who feels like they always got to be talking about other people and what's going on in their life in ways that are not healthy. And it's almost like Peter's like, murderer, thief, criminal, and they're all like, Phew. and then he looks at him and says, or a meddler, you might be on the list, right? How do you know you're with somebody that's a meddler? I'd say one way is this. You ever been with somebody that they like, they start talking and they always end every phrase with, just saying, I'm just saying. (laughs) When somebody ends every phrase with, I'm just saying, I don't know. Maybe they want to have a say without any responsibility of a solution. I'm not sure. He's saying, be careful, right? Be careful. You see, sometimes we suffer because of consequences of decisions that we make. But there's a third reason. I think the third reason is why Peter is writing this section, that we suffer because I'm a committed follower of Jesus. And I think it's this third reason that Peter's talking about. You see what he says in verse 14? If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. Verse 16, if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed, but praise God. Guys, can I just talk to you? As one of your pastors, that's why I feel this section is so important. Because I think the American church, 21st century, might be like a young Peter. A young Peter. You're saying, Dan, what do you mean by that? We want a Christianity without a cross. We want the crown, but no cross. And we can read a section like this in 21st century America and almost feel like, is this relevant to us? We can read it and, and, and think, does this make any difference to me? We want a Christianity in, in our culture that's cool. We love a Christianity that's comfortable. We're all about Christianity when it's convenient and when it's the consensus. We want a Christianity that everybody signs off on. Right? That everybody in our, we like to call our country a Christian country. The fact of the matter is, we might not think this sermon applies. Kind of like we might be like young Peter, like, don't be talking about that. And yet Peter in 1 Peter is talking to people for whom Christianity is not the consensus. And the truth is, you may be in a situation right now or we may be one day when it's not the consensus. He's talking to people for whom Christianity is not comfortable. And maybe you're in a situation now where following Christ isn't comfortable. It certainly isn't convenient for the people he's writing to. 
He's talking to people who are suffering because they're followers of Jesus. And you know what he wants them to know about suffering? I want you to write this down. He wants them to know that suffering is revealing. Suffering is revealing. You're saying, Dan, where are you getting that from? Well, just look at what it says in verse 12. He says, dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you. Suffering's a fire. You know what fire does? It reveals the purity of metal to test its strength. The Greek word there, you can forget this, but it, it, this is what it is. It's purosis. It sounds like purity. What he's saying is he's suggesting that the fire of suffering will test the metal of your faith. It purifies, it eliminates the impure and strengthens the pure. Here's how this works. Let me, let me explain this to you. Metal, under normal temperatures, the pure and the impure exist together just fine. Under normal temperatures, the pure and the impure exist together. That's why a refiner will put metal through a fire because it's in the fire where the impure is revealed because it can't stand up to the fire and it burns away. What's Peter saying? Listen to what I'm going to say. He's saying that for us as followers of Christ, you're saying I trust God is great when the temperature is normal. When there's a lot of people around me saying the same thing. When it's cool. When it's comfortable. When it's convenient. But he says when the heat of suffering gets turned up, it reveals what I'm really trusting. The fire reveals whether or not I have a divided heart. The fire reveals whether or not I truly am serving God or I actually want a God who serves me. The fire is what reveals where my allegiance really lies. You know how you know you're in the fire? It's one thing to say, in normal temperatures, I trust God. Think about this young adult. I trust God. And it's one thing to say, I trust God to bring into my life a relationship. I want to marry someone someday, so I'm going to trust God to bring into my life somebody who loves God and wants to serve God and spend the rest of their life with me. But you know you're in the fire. When that person doesn't come along and then somewhere in your late 20s, you meet somebody of the opposite sex and they're gorgeous. And they're interested in you. But they make it clear they want nothing to do with God. It's one thing to say, I trust God with my career. I trust God's going to take care of me. But you know you're in the fire. When you're in the company, and in order to get the job that you've been working for and wanting, you have to somehow compromise on your Christian ethic to accomplish what you've worked so hard all these years for. You see, that's what Peter's saying. It's revealing. It reveals. The fire reveals what we worship. And what we fear losing in the fire is oftentimes what we worship. It's not just revealing. Write this down somewhere. The, the suffering is refining. This is what fire does. It reveals and burns away. Ready? Listen to this. Whatever was a loss to keep and a gain to lose. That's what the fire does. 
It burns away what was a loss to keep and a gain to lose. And it strengthens what remains. You cannot refine metal without fire and you will not grow in your faith apart from the fire of suffering and trials and pain. Scripture is full of this. That's why he says don't be surprised. Guys, can I just tell you this? All you have to do is look back over church history. I don't know that this will encourage you. But I see a lot of times Christians, we get fussed up because what we're really afraid of is that something's going to happen to make it uncomfortable to be a Christian, inconvenient to be a Christian. We're afraid that it's not going to be the consensus. I want to tell you something. Even if you're like, I don't know that I like hearing it right now, you look back over church history and the moments in church history when Christianity was a movement of the gospel, when it was most powerful, effective, and potent was during times of fire. When it wasn't comfortable, it wasn't convenient, and it was not the consensus. Equally, you look back over church history and the times when the movement of the gospel amongst and in the church was the most stale and anemic was when it was cool, comfortable, convenient, and a lot of times the consensus. I think that's what Peter's saying. Suffering is revealing. It reveals what I trust and it's refining. It burns away what is a gain to lose, right? A gain to lose and a loss to keep. And it strengthens what remains. Which leads to this, and I just want to end with this. Like, what's our response then? It's like, okay, suffering's going to happen. He said, don't be surprised. The reality of suffering is that when it comes, it comes for different reasons. But when it comes into the life of a Christ follower, and in particular into the life of somebody because they're a Christ follower, it's refining, it's revealing, and then Peter says there's a response. What's the response? Look at what it says, verse 12. He says, dear friends... Do not be, say the word out loud, wherever you're at, right? Surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What's he saying? I'd write it down this way. He says, don't be shocked by suffering. By the way, it's a command. He's saying, don't be surprised by it. He says, expect it. He says, don't think of it as abnormal. He says, if you do, you'll writhe in self-pity as though something strange were happening to you. The truth is, some of us are always shocked when inconvenience comes into our life. Like, we're always surprised. Like, I can't believe this. Uh, Tim Keller, in, in a great book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says this. There's nothing more important than to maintain a life of purpose in the middle of suffering. Listen to this. Sociologists and anthropologists have analyzed and compared the various ways cultures deal with suffering. And when this comparison is done, it is often noted that our contemporary Western culture is one of the weakest and worst in history at doing so. Our own culture, he says, gives people almost no tools for dealing with tragedy, loss, and pain. Parents, listen to me. Somehow that needs to fit into your parenting. 
We shield our kids from experiencing loss, grief, right? And that, therefore, we don't give them any tools for how to walk through it. We don't ever want them to have to have a class with a teacher that we want to recommend the teacher that's going to be, right? I'm meddling, I realize, right? Just saying, right? But he goes on to say this, right? The end result is that today, he says, we are more shocked and therefore undone by suffering than our ancestors. I think what he's saying is, why would we think as Christ followers, why would we think it strange that we endure suffering if the one that we followed endured suffering? And he's saying that what happens is when we become surprised, here's the deal, what happens is that our surprise and shock leads to bitterness and resentment and disenfranchisement. Some of you are disenfranchised in your faith because you're shocked that there's been suffering, that, 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 that it's not been easy. Shame on us as a culture. We do this with people sometimes when they come to Christ. And let me apologize if that happened to you. We tell them that once they say yes, yes to Jesus, life's a breeze. Everything's going to be wonderful. We throw these verses at them, right? Where we say, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. Without ever reading the context of that particular passage, that that promise was brought into fulfillment in the middle of captivity. I talk about that in November, right? Like, like, here's the deal. We're shocked by suffering, and Jesus says, hey, don't be shocked by it. Peter says, hey, don't be shocked by it. The Bible is full of just God being real about it, and he says, don't be shocked by it. Like, as you walk through it, your response is, don't be surprised by it. Because if you are, it's going to lead to resentment. Your expectations that there's no suffering is going to be premeditated bitterness and resentment and disappointment. But that's not all he says. He says, verse 13, but... Go ahead, say the word out loud. But what? <laughs> but what? Rejoice? I thought we were talking about suffering. <laughs> but But rejoice? Inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be, and he uses a, a combination of words here, overjoyed, superjoyed. <laughs> he's, like, he's like getting giddy about it, like, like, what? When his glory is revealed. What's he saying? I'd write it down this way. He said, rejoice in the middle of suffering. He says, when you've anchored your life in Jesus, you have living hope that shows up by living hope while living here. And that living hope chooses to rejoice in suffering. It is make a choice to rejoice. You ought to write that down. Make a choice to rejoice. Here's what he's saying. James, the book of James does the same thing. He's saying, decide now, even before the suffering that you're not gonna be shocked by comes. Decide now to rejoice. He said, it's an accounting term. Put it in the account, I'm gonna rejoice. Make a choice to rejoice. Why? <laughs> that, that, that'd be my question, like, why? Why would somebody choose to rejoice when the suffering that I'm not gonna be shocked by comes? I think there's three reasons all in the passage. I want you to write them down. I got you writing a lot, I know, right? But I want you to write them down. First is this. 
I think the very first thing Peter tells us is this, that I can rejoice in my suffering because my suffering identifies me with the one who suffered for me. Verse 16, however, if you suffer as a Christian, he says, don't be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. I bet when Peter was writing that, he was reminded of a story in Acts 5. You look it up on your own time. But, but, but Peter and the apostles are preaching, and the leaders didn't like it. They brought him in, and they put him in jail. And they were talking about killing him. So a guy named Gamaliel, thankfully, stood up and said, don't do that. He says, man, if these guys are, if what they're doing is from God, you're not going to be able to stop it. And so the leaders listened to Gamaliel, and they pulled the guys out of jail, but they wanted to make sure they made a point, and so they had them flogged. Which, if you know anything about flogging, would have been a, just an awful punishment. And then they looked them square in the eye after beating them. And they said, don't you dare talk about this Jesus anymore. <laughs> Can you imagine? Peter is like, wow. I mean, what would your response have been? Like, I'm amazed at Peter's response. The same guy that's writing 1 Peter says in Acts 5.41, he's one of the apostles in verse 41, it says this, the apostles left the Sanhedrin, the leaders, what? There's our word, rejoicing, because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. I think Peter, I think what would have crossed his mind is that he rejoiced that he could suffer this small disgrace for the name of the one whose eyes met his after he denied him the third time. And that one whose name is Jesus went on to suffer in Peter's place. And I think Peter's like, sometimes our suffering identifies us with the one who suffered for us. I think there's a second reason, and I would write it down this way. My suffering is a path to unique intimacy with Jesus. It's a path to unique intimacy with Jesus. Uh, verse 13 says this, but rejoice in as much as you circle this in your Bibles. You ought to write in your Bibles, circle this word, participate in the sufferings of Christ. That word participate, uh, some of you that grew up in church, you maybe have heard this word, it is from the word koinonia. Maybe you've heard that word, right? It means to have this profound communion and fellowship with somebody. Here's what I think. My relationship with Jesus grows in the middle of hard times, in the midst of suffering. Suffering will do one of two things. It'll either push you into Jesus or drive you away. Uh, in John 15, Jesus, like, like this imagery of, of the refiner and the gold and the fire, uh, there's other imagery in the Bible. One of them is in John 15, Jesus uses the imagery of a tree and a gardener. And what the gardener does is he prunes the tree. And if you've ever seen that happen, it looks like an absolute mess. It's like, what does the gardener know what he's doing? He's killing the tree. When the whole time what he's doing, he's just cutting away because that which remains, when, when that which is cut away is gone, that which remains draws into the vine. You see, that's what happens when there's a time of cutting away, a fire. It pushes us into the one that we trust. Because he is the one who not just suffered in my place, but we have a God who suffers with us. He says, I promise never to leave you nor forsake you. You know that song that, that we sing? 
There's another in the fire. There's this Old Testament story about these three guys who suffered because they decided to be devoted in their allegiance and commitment to God. And the story literally spells out how there was another in the fire happened to be Jesus. You see, I think that's what he's saying. In the midst of the fire, we look around, there's an, we have a God who suffers with us. I, I don't know how to say this, but I, I, I think the times where I have enjoyed the deepest, most profound intimacy with God were sometimes in the time when I understood the least what was going on. When pain was the most profound. I found this quote, the deepest level of worship listen to this, is praising God in spite of pain, thanking God during a trial, trusting him when tempted, surrendering to him while suffering, and loving him even when I don't understand. I think it's fascinating. I think there's a third reason that we rejoice in is this. My suffering polishes or gives me the opportunity in my life to reflect the image and glory of Jesus. Uh, here's how he says it in verse 13. He says, Rejoice in as much as you participate in these sufferings so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Nothing greater in the life of a follower of Christ than the glory of Jesus. I, I was uh, reading this last week and uh, these two pastors were talking about a story about a silversmith. Somebody asked the silversmith, how do you know, listen to this, how do you know how long to keep the silver in the fire? And the silversmith was explaining, well, I keep the silver in the fire as long as it takes for me to be able to see my reflection in the metal. I think it's fascinating, isn't it? Sometimes suffering is the very thing in our life that refines us and polishes us so that what is seen in our life is not us, but it's him. (laughs) You know why sometimes I bristle under suffering? It's because my glory matters more than his, honestly. My glory matters more than his to me. And I think what Peter's saying is when I begin to understand the weight of his glory, nothing would matter more than that. And sometimes suffering is the very thing that God works into my life that allows for my life to reflect the image and glory of Jesus, which leads to one last thing, and then literally we're done. Verse 19, so then, he finishes it up, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That word commit is literally like deposit. I would write it down this way. Deposit your trust in God through suffering. How do we respond in the middle of suffering? We invest our trust in a God who sees a bigger picture. You know how you know you're doing that? You know how you know that you're depositing your trust in a God who sees a bigger picture? You know you're doing it when you continue to do good right? Listen, even when it doesn't seem like there's an immediate payoff. Isn't it true that sometimes suffering is the very thing that drives us to secret sin? 
to vices, to addiction. And sometimes it shows us that we're not depositing our trust in a God who sees bigger than us, right? Uh, Sometimes what happens when life becomes meaningless to us, I've met with people, life becomes meaningless. They'll say, it's meaningless because of something I've lost, whether it's my health, my money, or a relationship. All it's done is shown that I've been depositing my trust in something other than God. You see how that works? You see what Peter is saying is this. He's saying don't be surprised when a fiery ordeal comes your way. But instead, don't be shocked. Rejoice. Rejoice. Because in your suffering, you identify with the one who suffered for you. In your suffering, there's a unique opportunity to enjoy intimacy with the one who's suffering with you, Jesus. In your suffering, there's this unique opportunity to reflect the image of the one whose glory matters most, Jesus. And so he says, in light of that, deposit now your trust in a God who sees a bigger picture than you do. For some of you, for some of you, this is a message you needed to hear today because you're in that fire. For others of you, you're a young Peter. And you're like, man, I don't know, and I don't see how this relates. And I would look at you like an old Peter and say, my prayer is this, is that you'll take this message today because there will be some day when you'll have to draw on the truth of this message on this day. Don't be shocked at the fiery ordeal that you're facing. But rejoice and commit yourself to your faithful creator and continue to do good. So God, I thank you for an old seasoned fisherman who followed Jesus. And God, I pray in a culture where we long for a Christianity that's convenient, comfortable, that everyone signs off on, would you help us even maybe now, some of us in a fire, individually, corporately, would you help us to trust you, to find our identity in you, and to love you beyond anything else, and long for your glory above anything else, such that when it's not convenient, comfortable, or the consensus, we'll be able to rejoice and commit ourselves to you, our faithful creator. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name.